I think I learned a lot from the criminal reports over the years. You know, our comments on cases are often just about a page or a page and a half. And I think that there's a danger for all writers, and including me in other contexts, writing textbooks. I'm too long-winded, too many footnotes, all that stuff. I think you really want to communicate. You communicate short. And even on, now we all write on a computer, we should press the delete button more. And, you know, if I was doing appellate counsel work, I saw even, and remember, counselors stood up and said, I've got 20 points to argue, and it's time to cut them. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Counsel, we sit down with leading constitutional and criminal scholar Professor Don Stewart of Queen's University on a tranquil, snowy afternoon in his office in Kingston. Born and raised during the time of apartheid South Africa, Professor Stewart quickly came to realize the value of human rights and civil liberties when contrasted starkly with oppressive state power. Don Stewart has taught law for nearly 50 years and leaves a legacy of accomplished criminal justice advocates and jurists in his wake as he approaches retirement from his lengthy tenure at Queen's. Over those years, Professor Stewart has not just contributed to, but shaped criminal jurisprudence through his treaties and texts, criminal reports, and countless publications and articles. Cited on numerous occasions by the Supreme Court of Canada for his work and insights in criminal justice, Professor Stewart is widely recognized as one of the best legal minds in criminal justice that Canada has to offer. Among many other awards he has received over his career, in 2012, he was awarded the G. Arthur Martin Medal for Criminal Justice, perhaps the most prestigious award anyone can receive in Canada's criminal justice world, and one awarded only once before to an academic. Join us as we listen to Professor Stewart reflect on decades of Canadian criminal law, the impact of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms from its inception in 1982, the frustration and disappointment felt by politics, the future of law and academics, and so much more on this episode of Of Counsel. Well, I was born in South Africa in 1943, and my father was killed in World War II when I was six months old. So there I was with my mum and my sister, and I had a very sheltered upbringing. And the reality, of course, from 1943 onwards was we were living under apartheid. And I think I just grew up, but I can't say that I was immediately aware of the evils of apartheid. But as I grew older, say 14, 15, 16, I started to realize that, for example, if you were a black, we, had, we all had passes, and the pass that said Black Joe and Don White, and it was only enforced against the black. So I think from then onwards, I developed some sort of sense of uh, need to stand up for the oppressed, but easier said than done. So anyhow, I ended up at uh, university in, in, in this, my hometown, and I happened to be good at maths, and... Somebody said it'd be a good idea to do economics with that maths. I hated it. Couldn't stand <laughs> economics. Made absolutely no sense or interest to me at all. And um, so I actually, we had to do a law, undergraduate law. It was Roman law. And that was a bit historic and so on. But I just uh, 
So in my fight to get away from economics, I got into law and I just sort of clicked with it. And um, But as I, st- I was in full-time law school in South Africa for two years only to get an LLB, um, I started to realize that nobody was teaching us apartheid laws. It was too scary. It was a very oppressed society and actually we were all wiretapped and so on. And, so on. and um, I saw that some of my colleagues in the law school and connected to the law school were standing up to oppression and making legal arguments. So I started to really respect the, the, the lawyers like we defense counsel who tried to stand up against the power of apartheid laws. Was this a real danger for people in apartheid where, who were, you know, like here in Canada, if we wanted to go and uh, make a stance against particular practice and, you know, for example, carding that's happening right here, would that uh, have put you at serious risk? Uh, yes, and I was too scared to do that. I was a sheltered. I didn't want to be lended up by locked up or banned. Um, so um, eventually I landed up and I sort of took a safe choice to be a law professor and landed up in Johannesburg. And this is the other thing I always like to say about my background is that I was teaching law in Johannesburg uh, in uh, when was that? But in the end of the 60s. And Nelson Mandela was being tried for treason downtown. I knew nothing about Nelson Mandela. I was a law professor, but he was wow. banned and nobody could quote him. So when he was charged with ter- and convicted of terrorism with getting his life sentence, uh, on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock, somebody said, have you got anything to say, Mr. Mandela? And he stood up and spoke for four hours about his vision of uh, everybody having equal rights in South Africa. And with that, he was carted off for 25 years. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about that. So, Even as a law professor. Yes. And it, that, that shows you what an oppressive country is. So I think um, it's a very long-winded story here. But uh, when I when I talk about uh, you know over the years in my writings and teaching, I think I've clearly had a bias in favor of the accused, mm-hmm. and I think it's that's where my background is coming from. And I do really respect uh, those. I've never been a defense counsel, but I respect those that are defense counsel and stand up to law and order uh, pushes by parliamentarians, judges, enacting the criminal law, and so on. And on that. Um there was a brief point in time where you acted as a crown attorney within Toronto. Yes. Um, what did you take from that experience while you were there? Oh, I think that was the most one of the most important things I ever did. And why do you say that? Well, um, I, all, as I went from I got a, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from South Africa to go to England, and I was there in Oxford, Cambridge for a couple of years. Then I got a job here in Canada in 1970, just in time for the War Measures Act, and. Uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau declaring every Canadian civil rights were suspended. Mm -hmm. If we'd had any more money, we would have left Canada. We didn't. And loved, I love Canada. And um, so, uh, but all along, trying to sort of re come to a new country and enjoy Canada, no practical experience at all. So I taught in Alberta for a few years. And um, the first thing that really turned me on to commit me to be an academic was we had a visit from Ron DeLille in Alberta. He was a Queen's Prof here he as well. He was a Queen's Prof, yes. And he was there to push the evidence code from the mm-hmm. Law Reform Commission. I'd never seen a teacher either in, in South Africa or in Oxford or Cambridge who had the electricity that that guy had. He made people talk. He made people think. He obviously knew a lot about the laws of evidence and the policy and so on. And so he was one of my uh, personal mentors. But anyhow, I just am getting long-winded. Uh, why did I go into practice? Well, when I finally got my job here at Queen's, um, I'd never practiced, and I took a sabbatical. You'd go to the Crown Law Office criminal. 
And uh, my idea really was to do trial practice, which I'd never done. Here I was teaching evidence without having ever been in a trial. Mm -hmm. So um, one of my colleagues said, well, you can't do that. You'll be eaten alive if you do trials. So start at the appellate arena. So that's why I was six months as an appellate crown and six months as a trial crown. And um, I I just uh, learned that uh, it's a hard job to be a trial lawyer or an appellate lawyer. Harder, I think, it is to be a trial lawyer. Did you end up getting into the trial work at all while you were there? Oh, yes. Yeah. I was six months out of the Crown Law Office criminal with the team, the blue team on in, at uh, Old City Hall. Despite the warning, you didn't get eaten alive? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you just get going. Uh, I, the, what did I learn from that? I learned that actually it sort of reinforced me to be a, a tough academic. I, I saw lawyers, both Crown and judges and uh, defense counsel, who suddenly knew when to pull out the law. And those that were up to date on the law uh, uh, had huge power. Uh, you know, you'd have a sleepy provincial court judge looking not all that interested in doing his or her job, and then would come a lawyer. It could be old, could be young, could be female, could be male. And this suddenly you realize this lawyer knows exactly what law to pull out, um, how to deal with witnesses, how to deal with exaggerating witnesses, how to deal with grumpy judges, uh, as people, not just legal skills, but people skills. Mm-hmm. So all that comes together to me in my sort of ideal view of what a practitioner should be in this difficult world of criminal justice. And I, I learned that mostly from that year. It's interesting you say that because as you're talking, um, the two, when I go to court, the two, I feel, um, bags of weapons that I have is one is um, criminal procedure and the other is evidence. And I learned my evidence from Rhonda Lill. And uh, I think that's exactly it. As you go to court and people don't know how to apply the rules of evidence or don't understand these minutiae of criminal procedure at a serious disadvantage. So um, I want to return then to Professor DeLille. Um, You mentioned that he was one of your mentors and seemed to be motivators in getting into academics. So how did that push you into where you are now? It. uh, I was already teaching in Alberta. I taught there for three years. And um, I actually came to Queen's when Ron DeLowes went to the bench and the other evidence teacher committed murder. Mm-hmm. So there was a sudden vacancy at Queen's <laughs> and so right. I took that lucky break. Um, but uh, my main objective was I could be as good as Ron DeLille. Uh, and uh, of course you can never uh, imitate or do the same thing as somebody else. We've all got personal skills and his skills were different to mine. But I just wanted to enthuse students and to also be extremely tough. I mean, like you can teach the law of evidence in a sort of mamby-pamby sort of way. But if you want to object, you've got to be quick and you've got to be quick on your feet. You want to cross-examine their techniques to learn and their rules to be applied. And once you do all that, you have immense power. The other thing I, I noted from Hull City Hall in, that, in 1989 was the number of defense counsel who never run a trial. Cops, cops just cop and drop. And I thought that that's a blight on those defense counsel who don't do that. You have to know when to stop negotiating for a plea and make a stand. Otherwise, you have no uh, responsibility and no uh, clout with the Crown. Having seen both sides then from you know the, the practice of it and what you've just been describing, as well as what you know about how um, detailed and rather obscure some of the uh, criminal law can be. How do you fuse those two? Because as a professor, you're aware that these people will soon be stepping into the criminal justice system and they will be asked very quickly and in practical ways by the provincial court judges to explain what they mean. 
I think I think it's a very challenging job. But all I know is that you know, with uh, being on panels of continuing education, there are lots of of lawyers in practice that know as much about any aspect of charter jurisprudence or evidence jurisprudence or substantive law than I do. Uh, but they man- so they've managed to keep up. I also think there are lots of lawyers who don't mm-hmm. keep up. And I think that one of the issues that I have now as I retire is that uh, the computer has done damage. You know, lots of lawyers, when they do keep up, the idea is, well, I'll just go and look for a fact, a case on, which is factually similar to the one that I got. And uh, you'll retrieve hundreds of cases of very minor variety. And I can say that with some authority because I edit the criminal reports and have done since 1982. And our reporting of cases is about one in a hundred. And on the other hand, you've got uh, CCC doing about the same one in a hundred cases. So if you press a computer button, you're going to retrieve a hundred cases. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me like there's some advantage of uh, using uh, whatever service, ever book, book, and that's driven me. I mean, I've done a lot of writing and books and things like that, and done the criminal reports editing ever since 1982. And I have a team of five people who comment on cases, and um, that work is also. That the judges actually get an electronic version of it on a private listserv in advance, and that goes to a thousand judges. And I, you know, I don't know how privileged I am to run a team that can speak to a thousand judges at once. Now, of course, there are not a thousand judges reading it, mm-hmm. but that the, again, you know, you you can't generalize about crown attorneys, can't generalize about law professors, defense counsel, judges. Um, those at the top are distinguishable. And they're very impressive, all of them. I don't know how people in the defence bar keep up as well as I do, because I don't. I'm not an active practice, mm-hmm. and so I really admire people who are as up to date and know. And it's not that I'm a sort of an academic who thinks that every law case has got nuances of law to be pulled out. It's just you have to know when they when your case fits that row. If you if you could dedicate have every defence lawyer dedicate an hour of their time a week. Where would you direct them to stay up to date on the most important areas? Of, I, well, I, th- I think in the areas that you're in, you should rely on on um, books. It's it's a very um, curmudgeonly thing to say because people don't rely on books anymore. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me, I mean, I'm proud of the criminal report service that we run, but um, I know that it's not electronically available. The comments aren't. Um, but I know some lawyers who find that useful. If you, in evidence, it seems to me odd that you wouldn't look that there are several texts books on evidence. Um, I'm not suggesting you should go out and re- read them all. It's impossible. But I think you should have one and keep on updating it. Whereas I think a lot of defense counsel just go with the criminal code annotated mm-hmm. up there and choi- choose choice, and that's not enough. Mm-hmm. Professor Stewart, you've received many awards over the years, including the Canadian Association of Law Teachers Award for Academic Excellence in 98, the Phil Baker Award for Contributions to Criminal Justice in Kingston in 2008, the Ontario Bar Association's Mundell Medal for Legal Writing, uh, Queen's Law Society uh, Teaching Awards in 2006 and 2009. However, in 2012, you won the G. Arthur Martin Award, and this, uh, you know, every defense lawyer listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about. And for those that don't, it's, I think, the most prestigious award that the criminal law community can give. And I'm curious, um, up until that point, whether or not you uh, appreciated the practical uh, value that you're providing to the um, the criminal justice system? Well, the first thing I'd want to say is about the uh, G. Arthur Martin Award. I mean, I, I'm just, uh, I'll be forever blessed 
that I was, I'm on the same list as all those people that are on that list. They're, they're icons, most of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm very honored to be at the same list. Um, the only other academic was Marty Friedland, I think, and um, long ago. And I, I just, um, that, you know, as I retire, I've, I've been well honored with all sorts of things, but this one is very special to me. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the people, uh, as starting off when I practiced in 1989, I got to know practitioners better. And one of the things I did at the Crown Law Office was to seek out people who give me practical advice. And, and I still remember who those people were and how useful it was. And got to know the practicing bar a lot, which is quite close. The other thing to say is that that I've been very lucky in the sense that in 1982 we had the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm -hmm. And uh, you you said to me uh, earlier on uh, in in setting this interview up, who were your mentors? Well, I had one exchange with Justice Brian Dixon that has always stuck with me. He came, I think it was about in the early 80s, so the Charter just coming. And uh, he was a very engaging person and very personal. And he came right and talked to me. And he said, um, you know, you academics are extremely good on criticizing. You can <laughs> criticize anything. Mm-hmm. This is a terrible case, terrible decision for the following 10 reasons. And he said, if you were only a bit more constructive, it would be helpful. Because mm-hmm. we need help to develop char- principles to interpret this new document. It's very important. Um, so I was lucky in that sense. So I had people like Tony Lemaire and and uh, Justice Dixon, who quoted my books and made some influence. And as soon as that happened, of course, it just spurred me on. So um, the the interesting thing about the Charter of R- Rights and Freedoms is that it's okay as long as you're agreeing with the Charter standards that are being applied. And, mm-hmm. of course, since 1982, we've had a whole change of personnel on the courts. There's another challenge to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, how seriously the court, present court is taking it. Uh, but it's interesting, you know, like you, you look around. Uh, I was thinking the other day, what do I think of the present Supreme Court? Well, there's some um, – Justice Brown was appointed from Alberta, and I thought he was a conservative on the charter. He isn't. He's, he's, he's one of the people who's really pushing the, the importance of exclusion of evidence under 24-2, and he's writing strongly about it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what happens when you get to the Supreme Court, but often you don't actually uh, perform the way you did when you were before the Supreme Court. You uh, mentioned earlier that you have a pro-accused bias, and obviously this is rooted in large part from your time uh, during apartheid in uh, South Africa. And um, I wonder, is this something that you ever have a sense of um, understanding the fragility of our rights, even in Canada, and how quickly that can be eroded? Oh, oh yes. And, uh, you know, I, when I look back on the subjects that I teach mostly— uh, which is substantive law, procedure, evidence, and sentencing, all of it. Um, the challenge to a, f- a balanced law has been the politicians. There hasn't been a single uh, governing party in the federal government that hasn't eventually succumbed to the law and order policy, the expediency. Mm-hmm. It's easier to come out and be tough on the criminal law. I mean, take, for example, the present government, Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. He announced that he was the party of the charter and he was going to do all sorts of things to to uh, get rid of, for example, mandatory minimum sentences, nothing has happened. We're into two and a half years. Absolutely mm-hmm. nothing has happened. Uh, and um, so what, what's happening is there's a, a quick, a tougher laws on impaired driving, tougher laws on sexual assault, um, that sort of thing, what, whatever is good for votes. And uh, so in, in contrast to that, 
uh, we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms where we have had a very act. We've been lucky enough to have a very activist court. Uh, they they need to be fed. They need to have fine lawyers making Charter arguments. Uh, but you know, Chief Justice McLaughlin, for example, gave uh, reinvigorated the doctrine of overbreadth, and as a result of that, uh, we have uh, clinics uh, for drugs, uh, inside clinic, and so on, um, and we have laws against doctor-assisted suicide. Uh, she was the one who led the court to go after the mandatory minimum sentences. Um, yes, she's been tough in other areas and not entirely a, a charter advocate and everything. But uh, for all that, it gives encouragement. I think it should give encouragement for any academic and certainly any lawyer to make the arguments. And we've learned for some of those wins, like the striking down the old prostitution laws, that it's a lot of work because you have to set the evidentiary background at the trial level. You can't mm-hmm. just get up and make it up. And if you've done it properly, you have a chance of winning. And that sets up a balance. So it's not all law and order because the Supreme Court of Canada speaks with the authority of the Charter. Yes, I have to say I've been very disappointed, as many, if not all, defense lawyers have as well, because these grand promises were made about you know changes, and you would think that, of all people, someone with the name of Trudeau would be um, holding strong to that, but here we are, and we can all keep our fingers crossed. Well, we can hope, but also the um, I was part of a group in the last six months that uh, made an effort to have as a strategy for the Government of Canada to reinstitute the Canadian Law Reform Commission, mm-hmm. uh, which provides some sort of independent insight. Most other countries have that. Answer has been no so far, and um, that's interesting because uh, one of the the difficulties of getting reform in Canada, as far as I can see, is partly there's everybody's resistant to change. I mean, when I came in 1970, as we all had experienced, the criminal code is like quadrupled in size. The complexity of it just Statutory amendment after statutory amendment, law and order stuff, mostly. Um, it's surely time for somebody to try and simplify it mm-hmm. and make it more comprehensible. Uh, and yet we found things like evidence. Uh, isn't isn't it time to put in a more basic evidence document, not necessarily a, in, un, uh, a code that can't be amended, but in a statute to where we are under principal approach to hearsay and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's on a level playing field. Is there any enthusiasm for that? No. And one of the biggest bars to it is actually the practicing bar. We, you guys are resistant and women are resistant to change mm-hmm. because you, especially the ones who know the laws of evidence don't want to have everybody have a fair shake at the law of evidence. So it's, um, it's hard to see how it can get reformed. And another one, for example, give you the power of the charter. Um, in the 70s, of course, when we did have a law reform commission, they floated the idea of full disclosure by the Crown. And everybody said, oh, no, no, no. So, you know, it works pretty well. Trust the Crown and all the rest of it. And it took Justice Sapenka to say, suddenly, my background is civil practice. Why on earth isn't there full disclosure in criminal law? Let's make it a charter principle. Mm-hmm. That's had a huge impact. But the chances of any government doing it were remote. Right. Um, a lot of what you're discussing is um, covered in a uh a very ambitious task of a 20-page article you did as an overview, essentially, of criminal constitutional law um, that's um, in a book, The Canadian Charter and Criminal Justice by Natalie DeRosier, Patrick uh, Mecklem, and Peter Oliver as editors. I would encourage everyone to read it. Uh, I just did, and it's excellent, and uh, it, it really sets a nice timeline of this um, change that's happened. 
And I wonder, you know, when you uh, first saw the charter come into effect in uh, 1982, and did you appreciate the epochal change that was coming or did you sort of were you cautiously optimistic that it might uh, add some teeth to otherwise a toothless uh, I'm not sure anybody had a clear expectation of foresight I mean like we I think people who knew Tony Lemaire knew he was a reformer of the justice system Uh, I'm not sure you could understand that uh, Brian Dixon was going to write a judgment like Hunter and Southern and say this is something really different going on here um I don't think, you know, looking from 1982 to now, I mean, the, the Charter is no panacea. It's not everything's mm-hmm. in great shape. I mean, like, for example, look, they've been very unreceptive to trying to put proper controls or balance controls on in- police interrogation. Um, we, uh, it was Tony Lamar, of all people, who said, uh, well, in, in terms of 10B, the right to counsel, you don't get have any implementation duties on the police unless you ask for them. Well... That favors the pushy uh, career criminals, but it doesn't favor those that are vulnerable, scared, and don't assert their rights, and they don't get any. Well, it's funny you say that, and and just to interject on that, the practical problem with this, and we saw this as well in Sinclair and Willier, is that those who are most experienced will not say anything. And those people, um, you know, of all people, one would think that, that, that charters rights protect everyone. And what I've seen in practice is those that are, well, I'll just call what it is, those who are gangsters and career criminals, they don't say a word. And those people who are very vulnerable and don't understand their rights quickly start talking. Right. Um, so I, I would hope that that's very well said, Sean. I, I would hope that even something as as uh, well established as that, you don't get implementation duties for, for Section 10B unless you assert them, one day gets to be reconsidered. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that uh, we have an absolutely woeful right to remain silent and the decision in Singh to say that under the volunt- it's all been subsumed in the voluntary confession rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not the only one who's bellyaching about this. Justice Binney and the, the four dissenters were very strong on saying that it's outrageously little control on police interrogation practices and somebody can c- keep on asserting the right to remain silent over and over again without the presence of a lawyer, and nothing can be done about it. And then, of course, we have the Canadian Mr. Big strategy technique of undercover officers. And uh, in other countries, it's put under the voluntary confession rule. Mm-hmm. It just says, you're an, after we'll decide whether or not there's been an undue coercion, uh, well, we have a law in heart that says, no, it's not about that. It's about probative value versus prejudicial effect. So when the Hart decision came out, everybody jumped up and said, great, we, so there were people, editorial writing that they've controlled, they missed a big strategy. Well, they haven't because every case since then, about 95% of the cases, the evidence comes in because the police have been told, as long as you've got some corroborating evidence, it's okay, do whatever you want. Right, and that, that raises a really interesting um, point because a phenomenon that I have noticed as a defense lawyer is that these uh, jurisprudential tests uh, carved out often by the Supreme Court of Canada are often used uh, instead of a a shield, but rather a roadmap 
for police to tippy-toe around the Charter's protections by either using these types of tests or catchphrases like articulable cause or plain view. And I wonder whether what's happening is a incentivization of police to tailor uh, and nullify constitutional objections or scrutiny. So I wonder, do you see that? Are you concerned that the Charter, in some respects, has offered a rather nebulous rule book that's susceptible to these sorts of weaknesses? Um, and they may not be so prob- problematic if we had clear and codified criminal procedure rules? Well, I, I think I'm really skeptic about that, Sean, because... Uh, if, but every time we've tried to put up new procedural rules, say, for example, we said, uh, let's have some new rules dealing with investigative detention. Mm-hmm. The first thing that happens up in Ottawa is that they call all the police groups and all the Crown groups to consult with them and say, what do you want? Right. And um, so I, uh, and the other thing that's controversial is the court developing ancillary powers, you know, making up new police powers. And Justice Dix. Dixon wouldn't like that because he said that that's a job for Parliament rather than for the courts. Well, we're into that now. So we've created all sorts of new police powers. On the other hand, uh, I think I prefer over the years the balance that was struck by the Supreme Court. For Mm -hmm. example, nobody was going to do anything about strip searches until we had the Golden case, which is quite strong. Of course, there are arguments about how well that's enforced. Uh, Is it enforced the same way everywhere? So I don't know. I'm... You know, when I see what's happening, I was quite enthusiastic when I heard Justin Trudeau and his Minister of Justice talking about we're the party of the Charter, we're going to do things, we're going to clear up the criminal code, we're going to get rid of all the provisions that have been held to be unconstitutional, including constructive murder. What's that still doing in the code? Right. Nothing has happened. So mm-hmm. uh, I actually am more enamored by putting some confidence in the, in the Supreme Court still. As you were saying that, I'm. It came to mind the uh, attempts to codify carding uh, yes. in Ontario, which, you know, I've always thought, why are we codifying something that has no lawful authority anyway? Right. It's constitutionally unsound, and there becomes this false legitimacy that as long as it's written down, uh, it's somehow lawful when really it just should all be barred. Yes, and and that certainly is a risk. And I wonder then. Um, you know, perhaps is the jurisprudence stemming from the charter reached a point of complexity that it's no longer accessible to the average Canadian? For example, you know, people will go online and comment on sections and say things like, I have a right to freedom of speech, or I have a right against search and seizure. And that's what the charter says, if you just read it. But now, after many years of jurisprudence, we've got to a point where looking at that as a layperson, you think you understand what it means. But even as a criminal defense lawyer, it would take many, many minutes to de- explain what a very minute aspect of search and seizure means to a client. And do you feel there's been a detachment since 1982? Um, I think there's no doubt that the uh, charter standards are complex. Um, I've just uh, rewritten uh, my charter book, textbook, and it was a big sweat. There'd been lots of uh, inconsistency and so on. But on the other hand, um, the trouble is that the criminal justice system is complex. I mean, mm-hmm. if we turn to another subject and talk about com- uh, the public debate about what to do about sexual assault victims, um, it's not as easy as people are making out. And I applaud, for example, Anne Molloy the other day in the Nasiak case, mm-hmm. saying, believe the victim is something that's not to be found in the criminal justice system because we have a job of the presumption of innocence, proof beyond reasonable doubt, assessing credibility and reliability, and that's sometimes tough, very tough. 
But yet on the flip side, we have certain politicians, and I'll, uh, Jagmeet Singh in particular says a presumption of innocence has no application in the public sphere. And uh, how then do we balance those those things, and, and where do you see that rhetoric taking us from the political point of view? Well, I think it's dangerous in the sense that uh, you could get law and order solutions. But fortunately, we've still got a charter, so they could be challenged. Um, uh, you know, for example, the uh, doctor-assisted suicide, the parliament put in place a law that much more restrictive than what the Supreme Court said, so that challenges going back to the court. Mm-hmm. There are challenges to the new prostitution laws, mm-hmm. um, which I see as mostly hip- the whole area of how the criminal law is handled, prostitution under the old laws or under the new laws. It's intensely hypocritical, mm-hmm. um, uh, very uh, unevenly enforced, whatever we've got in place. Right. And that alone should speak to charter challenges. Um, the I don't know. I mean, the the truth of the matter is that all the subject, all this, the sentencing aspects, the you know, like the most recent thing is that um, in the in this mandatory minimum cases, even Chief Justice McLaughlin was talking about maybe we can have a statutory exception to a mandatory minimum. I think that's a terrible solution would just be every good defense counsel will say, this is an exceptional case. Right. And if you really want to deal with uh, the rigidity of having 100 mandatory minimums, mostly produced by the Harper Law and Order government, you've got to get rid of them, right. most of them. Right, right. Do it quickly. So I want to turn to um, teaching and law school and legal education. Um, do you feel that... Um, you have a pretty good sense of the direction that the students you've taught over the years of where they're going to go in their career? Do you feel that you can now predict where you'll see them in 10, 15 years? Well, um, I only see a very selective sample. I see the ones that are uh, turned on to criminal justice issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the minority of our students. But um, so uh, one of the things that's kept me teaching so long, I'm after all 74, so I'm well beyond retirement age, um, is the enthusiasm and expertise of some of these students. And we're very proud of the tradition we have in teaching and criminal law at, at Queen's. And you know, I, I lucked out because I had colleagues like Ma- Ma- Alan Manson and Ron DeLell and uh, Lisa DeFremont, who's now at Osgood. And um, we, I think we developed a, a, a reputation and um, we're very proud of it. Uh, but huge things have happened. I think you've mentioned it in, in, in this prior to when we start to talk about this. We uh, deregulated tuition. So we got mm-hmm. these huge tuition things. Right. I remember having a debate with uh, Bob Ray, of all people, who's talked about the fact that there was a need to deregulate uh, legal tuition so we have better law schools. I stood up and said, um, I think that you're going to make it almost impossible for law students who have big debts to go and practice things like family law and criminal law. And he said, you don't know what you're talking about. Well, you were absolutely right, because that's exactly what's happened now. And uh, particularly in criminal law, you see many, many people who are very passionate about criminal law, many of them from your class, who come and say, I want to do this now. And the only solution that seems to work for many of them is hopefully getting a position with the Crown's office. Yeah. And even then, um, that's challenging in this day and age, too, because it's contract after contract. Um, so this is a real concern. And um, what what concerns do you see for the future of law and access to justice if that's happening? Well, I, I actually think that we're producing too many uh, law students. We should be guaranteeing jobs rather than sort of saying, well, 
too bad you can't get articles or something. Um, what happens in the law school that I teach at is this is the the second year students try and get into the Crown Law Office or one of the trial Crown systems. We're still very proud at Queen's Record. I think there ten there were ten second year jobs going in Crown system last year. We got eight of them. Eight out of ten were from Queen's, and. Um, but that leaves, in my experience, at least 10, 15, 20 other students who are so dis, uh, upset that they didn't become, they can't see a way to becoming a, a criminal lawyer because they don't have the money. They got this huge debts. Right. So I applaud you, Sean, for you having a small firm in which you obviously uh, finding the space to have article student one or two there and then to en- enhance them because a whole lot of defense counsel don't do that. It's very hard to get articles with a defense firm. Right. And, and even more so now, you know, there's a lot of demands on, um, the, on pressures, I should say, on legal aid. Yes. Very, uh, uh, very strong cutbacks and funding. And as we were saying just before um, we sat down today, uh, you know, there was a time when I would come back to my firm and there would be a big stack of certificates and it seemed like the work would never end. And, um, you know, it didn't pay all that great, but we loved doing it. And there was a lot of it and we didn't mind. And it was very rewarding. But now uh, certificates are very far and few between. It's very challenging. Right. I, um, I've i seen a lot of defense counsel uh, start off on their own as uh, sole practitioners. And that I, I don't advise that. It's very hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Although some people have. I mean, we, one of the Queen's grad, Wendy Artred, wrote a book on her starting off as a sole practitioner. And it's doable. I think you started a firm recently yourself there, Sean. So that the, but I've always said that I couldn't imagine myself doing it on my own as a defense counsel. I'd want to sort of pair up with a school friend or a friend or mm-hmm. somebody who's going to do it together, so you can spin each other off. And um, there were there were there were also some sometimes I've given career advice as best I can because I've never actually applied to be a defense counsel to uh, students who I feel are a bit Toronto centric. You know, like you got to do it in Toronto, mm-hmm. and I see I see the defense practice of the defense council in Toronto is very hectic, flying up to North York and then back to Old City Hall in one day or something like that. And if you went to a smaller town, I think you could develop a more leisurely type of practice and perhaps be less rushed and perhaps be more quality in your uh, the work that you do. Yeah, I would give that same advice, and it's also extremely competitive in the Toronto market, so yes. everyone's fighting over the same certificates and. Yeah. Um, is there something that, you know, you see um, students um, pursuing that is often misguided? Is there a key piece of advice that you would offer them in pursuing, um, you know, the practice areas that they want to? Well, um, one thing I could say, a pattern for me is that, as I said, uh, I don't appeal to all, um, what, because of my subjects, the real enthusiasts are the top feeders, the top in the class. Mm-hmm. And when they don't get a crown job at the beginning of second year, um, they're devastated. But they're really good ones. They've got good marks and good people skills and a bright as hell. Um, they often go to Bay Street mm-hmm. and they get, they say, oh, well, I'll do litigation on Bay Street. Then I have a pattern. It's, I'm not making this up. At least two calls a year from somebody who says, um, I finished my articles on Bay Street or I've been hard back for Bay Street for two years and I'm in litigation department and I hate it. Because I'm never in court. It's all settled in advance and it's all big, long documentary, commercial documents and things like that. So I always try and I, I'm always impressed by the number of, of students who somehow or other uh, make it out of uh, uh, Bay Street and actually do 
get yeah. into being practicing on their own. And um, I felt, you know, from somebody like myself who spent my whole life on salary in a sheltered job, I can't tell them how to do it or to do it. But I do see students doing it. Mm-hmm. Not, um, and the other thing is that I, I, I've never met one of my students, and there are lots of them practicing criminal law in Ontario and elsewhere, who said they're bored. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an engrossing job, as you well know, Sean. So that the, um, that's exciting, and that's another encouragement to teach. I sort of see my job over the years as being, if I can teach them the best evidence course that I can teach them or the best criminal charter jurisprudence course I can teach them, when they're in a court somewhere, wherever it is, and suddenly they deal with somebody who's been arbitrarily detained by a police officer, they know what to do. Right. Um, and uh, so that's that's it's been very exciting to do that. Um, people still keep in contact with me too, which is fun. Do you ever give advice about academics? So those who want to pursue um, academics in law, they finish law school and they or they want to come back and, and pursue becoming a law professor. There seems to be challenges with that as well. Well. Uh, I'm I'm a bit uh, discouraged in that front because uh, I see law schools, including, I'm afraid, our own, but starting off with other law schools, uh, increasingly emphasizing legal theory. It's like there's, they're turning law schools into philosophy schools. Mm-hmm. And um, so lawyers, and that's the vast percentage of our students don't want that. They want to look at how we become a lawyer in whatever the capacity is. And um, so... Not only that, there seems to be most of the law schools across country, across the country, need people who've done doctoral work. They want a doctoral candidate, preferably on a demanding theoretical subject in Harvard, Yale, NYU, or something like that. And um, I think that's so short-sighted. I mean, so for example, if you were a student, one of the top students who went and got an article job at the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, and you didn't have a master's, you wouldn't you wouldn't get anywhere. If you, even if you had a master's, somebody would say, before you apply to a, a prestigious law school, hopefully like Queen's, go and get a doctorate. And I, I find that so discouraging. So lots of really good people are teaching in various law schools across the country, but only in a part-time basis. Right. So uh, Toronto schools in particular use a lot, of, we do too as well. Uh, lots of very well-committed practitioners who actually are scholars as well and teach. But those, if any of those want to become a full-time teacher, good luck. You're not going to be even considered. Right, right. I think that's a shocking indictment of law schools, law school legal education. I think it's awful. So a lighter question for you. Is there, a, I ask this to everybody, so I'll ask you as well. Is there one item or ritual that you can't go to class or write without? I always take a glass of water and... Um, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but uh, over the years, I got away from having lecture notes, uh, things that you read out. I've, I found this even when I was, that one year I practiced doing, I was 18 times in the Court of Appeal with factums. Um, reading a factum or is killer. I don't think you're effective. I, need, I think you need to make eye contact. You need to stumble over a few words and that sort of thing. Um, and so for me, what I do is I take the books that I've written and I write little notes the side of the book. That's what I do, just mm-hmm. as a sort of case I forget, especially as I'm getting older, I am forgetting. And um, so that so I'm probably disjointed as I am in this talk with you, <laughs> but uh, I think it's more authentic and I think it's more interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also um, I am really old in the sense that 
another thing about my teaching is that I discourage people. I don't use electronics very much. I don't use overhead projectors. Um, I try and get them to talk and take sides. And so I think oral skills are extremely important even at law school. Lots of our students who've spent their lives on undergraduate and at the law school looking over computers and writing things uh, don't have the experience of knowing what what's written on a computer looks good until you try and persuade somebody that that's the right position. Well, I so think that's I th- a very valuable yeah. thing to teach because particularly in litigation, um, you can't look at your computer when your witness will change right. their answers. Right. And, and I, I still also have experience of uh, people that looked like they were very well prepared to cross-examine and didn't listen to the answers right? and just didn't go with the flow and right. just carried on answering the questions that was all well prepared. And uh, that, I... I you know, even in the six months I was a trial lawyer, I think I got better at the end, but you'd have to have several years of being a trial lawyer before you were, I think, you really reached the peak of your skills. So on that, did you have anyone, either during your time as a, a Crown, um, watching these litigators, or, or just in general, who were some of your legal heroes um, through your career? Well, um, I don't know. I, I, I learned from uh, one of the people that I worked at the Crown Law Office was Gary Trotter. Mm-hmm. And um, he always impresses me because he's succinct, um, writes short. I think that um, for me as an academic writing books and criminal reports and that sort of stuff in the e-letter for judges, I think I probably learned a great deal from my colleagues at the, on that uh, group, Steve Cognon from Dalhousie and Tim Quigley from Saskatchewan and Lisa Dufremont. And... Um, you know, we, we we have to come up with these summaries of big cases and comments every three weeks. So that doesn't take, you have to come up quickly and keep going at it. Um, and it's very reassuring. And one of your colleagues on that team, some says, I don't understand this. Or what about this? What about this? And, um, I think often, I don't know what it's really like to be in full-time practice, but when I was at the Crown Law Office Criminal, as I said already, uh, was, I knew I was heading to the trial division. So when I, I, I asked people like, Taylor and, and other people as to uh, how to do it. And they gave me very good advice. Listen, share your views with others and don't be scared. I think the other barrier to people is that they don't admit that they don't know anything. Mm-hmm. If you don't know anything, you should ask. You know, like intellectual honesty is important. If you don't understand something, say you don't understand it. Just as you're describing uh, your time there, I'm wondering, is there was there a moment in uh, during your time at Crown Law Criminal where um, you have maybe a funny story or something that really sticks out in your mind, a particular interaction with the defense lawyer or anything like that? that... Um, oh, well, I had one jury trial attempt murder case, which I lost. I lost the confession to be excluded under the charter. And um, the the defense counsel who will be nameless, uh, I had won what I thought was a great victory. I went after his expert that was testified at the voluntary confession hearing and I think I made him look terrible. Mm-hmm. So when I got to the trial, the answer to that by this defense counsel was just to produce a different different expert without telling me. <laughs> of course, now there's a notice requirement, but there wasn't at that time. And uh, so um, that was, I don't know about being funny, but I thought cause it's not difficult to get very uh, carried away with the adversary system. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent 30 years being uh, on the John Hard board in Kingston, and we were taught there's no such thing as a short sentence. Well, if you're a crown at Old City Hall, no problem at all. You stand up, Your Honor, I seek a sentence of two months or something, as if it made any difference at all or was justifiable. Mm-hmm. What does a great day 
look like to you, Professor Stewart? Uh, well, now, for example, um, as I'm winding down teaching, I I do enjoy writing. I think I think I um, I think I learned a lot from the criminal reports over the years. You know, our comments on cases are often just about a page or a page and a half, and I think that there's a danger for all writers, and including me in other contexts, writing textbooks. I'm too long-winded, too many footnotes, all that stuff. I think you really want to communicate. You communicate short, and uh, even on, now we all write on a computer, we should press the delete button more. And, you know, if I was doing appellate counsel work, I saw even, and remember, counsel who stood up and said, I've got 20 points to argue, and it's time to cut them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that's a good day for me. But um, I think a, um, I have an open door policy here, which is uh, unusual, I think, still, and, and it's, as I'm old, I don't like students sending me emails, like I'm having trouble with men's rare wood. Could you just tell me about that again? I'd rather talk it out with them. And that makes my day fun. And we've got some extraordinary students in this building. I mean, we've just, um, I can brag about Queens, but uh, the clerkships have just come out. We've got three, three people at the Supreme Court of Canada, three at the Federal Court of Appeal, and one and counting at the Ontario Court of Appeal. Wow. And I know many of those students, and they really deserve to be there, and they'll be very perspi- uh, constructive members of the that for that for those courts as you um you know as you say you're approaching retirement and from what i see you leave a legacy of lawyers behind if you go through the roster of excellent criminal lawyers and judges that i come across on a day-to-day um most of them uh went to queens and nearly all of them um were taught by you at some point and i have to say i don't always like that when it's a crown on the other side but (laughs) do you have um do you have plans for retirement, and does that include continue um, contributions to Canadian criminal justice? Uh, I think that I've, uh, I'm at the age that I've seen a lot of judges retiring from being criminal law experts and get depressed pretty quickly. And um, I still find it such an engaging enterprise, so I plan to continue with the work on the criminal reports and the e-letter and keeping updating my books. Um, very proud of my books, uh, mm-hmm. three teaching books and two textbooks. I think the textbooks are probably finished now because they're a lot of work, but uh, I've got co- co-authored uh, teaching books and, and we'll probably keep up with that. But actually, most of all, I think that there's still, there's still a danger that uh, we go off the rails with either legislative reforms or uh, cho- uh, Supreme Court of Canada decisions that go the wrong way from, mm-hmm. from my point of view. So I think there's a role to keep doing that. Um, Where do you see the next 10 to 20 years of Canadian law going? In an uncertain direction. (laughs) (laughs) The truth of the matter is that it does really change, uh, depend on who's the the power group at the Supreme Court of Canada, Mm -hmm. and it changes. But as I said at the moment, just right now at the moment, this day, I mean, uh, for example, the Patterson case on 24-2, uh, I, I, I must brag that I was the lawyer in the Grant case on 24-2 for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I think the charter would be far less important if there wasn't a vigorous remedy of exclusion of evidence. I'm very proud of my, my trip contribution to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, and we're so different to the United States. The United States have long since abandoned the exclusionary rule. They say, oh, well, we don't need that. We, we can civil rights, we can sue police officers who are racist or something like that. Um, because they have such a conservative court 
And you know, all the studies would indicate that if you can establish a charter violation in Canada, you'll get exclusion in two out of every three cases at the trial level. Um, not saying that's necessarily going to happen, and there's much less exclusion at the court of appeal level. But um, the the crown selects the cases that they appeals. So, mm-hmm. so I think that if we didn't have a, a, a rigorous, strong twenty four two remedy, uh, this charter stuff would be paper tiger, and we we have it, and that's very very good. Um, uh, you know, like some some people ask me, like, what are you going to what are you going to do next? Um, I don't think I'm the kind of person who spent all this time looking at the criminal justice system. I'm like many people who have done that. I'm not going to suddenly take up Renaissance art or something. <laughs> yes. um, uh, I, I have to say that uh, my career has been made much, much easier by my wife. We've been married for 50 years. She was a South African as well, coming to South Africa, she and I on our own, not knowing anybody. Um, she's a, been a constant support. And um, we also have a cottage near Kingston, uh, which we bought about five years ago. We used to rent it, now we bought it. 35 minutes away, not much traffic to get there. It's right on the water. You can canoe and uh, swim. And we also have three uh, daughters who married, and now they have, we have six grandchildren. Uh, one of my daughters, of course, is Joanne Stewart, who's at the Crown Law Office Criminal, so I have to keep her on, under control. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Reminding her of the charter values that's right. that you've so, written about. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I think that there's a chance to do less. I, you know, I've, just from the complexity, Sean, that you were talking about, I mean, uh, people sometimes think law teaching is pretty easy. It's not so easy. If you went down to talk about, you know, what is the latest word about challenging uh, for credibility based on character? And you've got to do that in two hours and go through all the inconsistencies that we've got. It's very, very difficult. And I have been finding recently that I'm, I'm, I have to do more preparation, so I forget details. Yeah, it's I hard. Think, and, yeah. and even as you say, you know, you can go on to uh, search, uh, whether it be Canley or Lexis, and yeah. you can bring up thousands of cases right. on any particular point, And it's overwhelming because yeah. before you could go to the CCCs and yeah. you could find some canonical law. But now uh, it, there's too almost too much. Yeah. yeah, that's why I think that my, my, my strong push there, although I don't think modern millennial students are listening, if it's not uh, don't necessarily use the computer exclusively to do your research. I mean, mm-hmm. if you, for example, if you're in Ontario, go and look at what's book on evidence or something. Have it around. So if you have a quick thing to look at, you can look at it. Although, um, or something like that. One mm-hmm. of the update services, not all of them, you can't do that. But um, I also, I, I actually think that, uh, you know, with all the criticism of the justice system, particularly in the context of sexual assault, um, I think that we should be more proud of the justice system than we are. I mean, there are definitely problems with it, or some of them mentioned with the legal aid and so on, mm-hmm. and the delays, and the we've got used to doing things in a certain way. I mean, if I was a real dreamboat, I would say Ian Scott had it right long ago, that we shouldn't have two levels of trial court, we should have one, mm-hmm. and one appeal court, and uh, the court, the trial court should be amalgamated. I'm not going to live that long. It's not going to happen, but well, it does be seem better. It does seem to be potentially coming with a talk about eliminating preliminary inquiries. Yes. That could certainly be a, a catalyst to join the courts because yeah. that seems to be one thing that's always separating the two. So uh, let me ask you, if you had the power of uh, 
being attorney general or a Supreme Court of Canada justice, uh, what would you like to see? Uh, maybe that's it. Maybe uh, joining the courts. Or is there something else you'd like to see that you think would really benefit society? I, I think that there should be a time-defined uh, commission uh, populated by about, I don't know, eight people or something. And they should be given the chance to come up with a, a simplified version of the criminal code mm-hmm. and the evidence code. The evidence code is creaking. I mean, there's very little statutory law left in that. and What's left is often antiquated and doesn't really apply anymore. So I actually do believe in, in sort of simplifying the criminal code and, and an evidence code. But you'd have to have political will. And I think I'm a dreamboat because I don't think, you know, like we've just had the answer from the justice, Justin Trudeau, that it not prepared to set up a permanent law reform commission or mm-hmm. commission to do that. Um, and I think the politicians like to keep control of what the, the criminal justice agenda is. Mm-hmm. In the context of sexual assault, I conclude on perhaps on a very controversial note. Um, I really do, do think we pushed the pendulum too far in the law and that we're one of the very few countries in the Western world where it has a rape shield law that applies equally to prior sexual history with the accused. Mm-hmm. Uh, House of Lords didn't accept our views and said the opposite. Um, I do think that on the on the issues of uh, consent and mistaken belief is, a, is no longer a defense. It's just there's so many barriers to that that you we never use it anymore. Um, and I think that the people, I mean, the, the, I, I don't, it's not all on one side. I think that there's clearly evidence by many scholars that some defense counsel abused the their position and uh, demean victims in ways that are not permitted by the rape shield laws and shouldn't be done. But there are also crown attorneys that go the other way against mm-hmm. accused. And so just, just like we can't generalize about all judges or all defense counsel or all law professors or anything like that, um, you know, it's a human in- enterprise. I also think it's time to uh, fix up the prisons um, and... I think that the abolition of, of most mandatory minimum sentences would be go a long way, but I suspect the the fix is in, and we're going to get in extraordinary circumstances. It doesn't have to be applied as a solution by the Department of Justice, and if we do that. I think it's a retrograde step. Well, it sounds like you've got a busy retirement ahead. Then, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do get. To, I will have the chance to uh, get to know my grandchildren better. They've all got personalities, and it's fun to watch my children all of them and grandchildren and spend more time with my wife. It, uh, it's, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm a happy person in that sense. I'm very lucky. And, I, you know, like in, in, in one of the reasons why I've been sort of selfish and hanging on to my position as a law professor here is that um, I do get a lot of, of uh, personal contact with students that I've taught and, mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, lawyers, and it's very gratifying. You know, some of them say think very nice things about, well, you made a difference. And not all of us, I was lucky to have that. I'm sure the ones who don't like me would say something else, but I'm just relying on the people who said you made a nice positive difference. Well, I haven't heard any of those people yet. And certainly (laughs) (laughs) in the lawyer's lounges that I'm in, uh, you definitely leave a a very strong criminal law legacy behind. And I congratulate you with that. And I wish you all the best with... uh, Sure, and I should say that that the guard has changed. We've appointed... That we have at least three new uh, criminal law professors, Lisa Kerr, Lisa Kelly, and Noah Wiseboard to take over from the criminal law uh, here. And I hope we'll continue to be very strong. 
Yes, and and I certainly have uh, followed some of those developments, and I follow uh, Lisa Kerr on Twitter. Yeah. Very uh, very active and uh, very encouraging to see what she's doing, particularly in the area of uh, solitary confinement. Yes. And um, so you know, even though as you're enjoying your cottage in Kingston, you can. Uh, it's in I, I, good hands. I still plan to come in. I mean, it's easier to work in an office like this. Um, so I, the, I think people don't understand the process of law reporting. I mean, like it's not unusual for me to have in one week in the middle of, of a term of, of uh, cases, 400 cases come into my office. So <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and you choose four and throw the rest away. And... You know, like on the other side, you sometimes have judges saying, why don't you report any of my judgments? Um, you you underemphasize this court or that court. Um, it's just that the volume is so huge. Right. <laughs> there are some other strange things too, which is that in on the judiciary side, because because I'm old enough, I know a lot of judges, including lawyers who were, I met in that one year and afterwards and before and so on, who've been on the court now for 10, 15 years and don't seem to have written a judgment. Like it's oral, it's all oral. <laughs> so I've, I've listened to everybody, and I've found proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, and so it, it's that perplexes me that they haven't had once had a decision, had a case that let me adjourn and let me really think about this and write a judgment. Then, of course, on the other hand, just like academics like myself, there are people who write every time on right. every judgment and mm-hmm. too long. Mm-hmm. And then if you're trying to gauge things like. Uh, a void year on a, vo- on a voluntary confession rule, you know that some judges will never exclude the confession and you'll know that some judges will more likely to. It's a very human enterprise. Um, but uh, when I look back on uh, criminal justice, teaching criminal law of all the varieties, it's not boring. It's never going to be un- not boring. There's always going to be spectacular screw-up cases. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, we've got to all be positive in our agenda. I, I go back to the finish with the Brian Dixon stuff. I just think the more constructive we can be, the better. Mm-hmm. All of us. Well, thank you very much, Professor Stewart. Thank it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Thanks very much for inviting me.